AG Comics interview aims to inspire, motivate, enlighten, and of course educate the youth of today for the days of tomorrow. Okay, so for edition number three of Edgy Camus interview, we're here with a Scottish political um, socialist firebrand and legend, Tommy Sheridan. Thank you very much for joining us. Tony, when I hear that uh, description, legend, I always think about how it's spelt, because uh, obviously you can pronounce a legend, um, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's usually more appropriate for people that consider themselves legends. I, I'm not in any way, shape or form a legend. I'm, I'm somebody who has held strongly um, principled beliefs for a long time. Uh, I'm a socialist, I try and um, practice socialism, I try and promote socialism, and I, I try and fight injustice wherever I see it. Um, and if it's within my my power to, to do anything about it, I'll, I'll certainly try. But uh, the real legends are the ordinary men and women across Scotland and across the world who struggle day in, day out to make things um, turn over to to, to live in conditions which are often extremely trying, whether it be war-torn regions, poverty-torn regions, bringing up families, um, giving love to children. They're the legends, you know, and, and <laughs> we, I think, share a passion for football. We, we, we share a passion for Glasgow Celtic, um, but we often refer, refer to our players as legends, but deep down we know they're only doing something that every single one is would love to do, yeah. which is to play football for a living. So um, from my point of view, I, I try and, and keep my politics to the forefront of of everything I do. I don't try and bore people. I don't try and force feed people because not everybody is interested in politics and not everybody's ready to share the values of socialism. But I do think there are literally millions of what I call unconscious socialists. People who will say, A, they're not interested in politics, and B, they don't know what socialism is, and then you talk to them for five or ten minutes about their lives uh, and how they stick up for their workmates or how they, they fight in the parents' council, council or how they try and uh, do the best for their children, and you suddenly realise that they may not consider themselves socialists, but they actually in their lives are socialists because they've got deeply held human values of compassion, of care, uh, of the idea of fairness. And that's, at the end of the day, what socialism is about. You know, you can mystify the words. You can, people can write major books about socialism and try and explain it. But at the end of the day, it's a way of life and it's, it's your values that you hold. You actually just, you took the words out of my mouth to a certain extent because that's what I was going to ask as a, as a starter for 10. Um, obviously, the, the, the aim of EduCamus interviews is to educate and enlighten, motivate, inspire and inform youngsters out there and, of course, their parents as well that will be listening. The definition of socialism, I mean, what what is socialism? Socialism to me is, first and foremost, a, an economic way of life that determines that the big things that matter gas, electricity, water, education, housing, public transport, these things are essential. You know, try living life without electricity, try living life without gas, without water, um, without public transport, it would be well nigh impossible. What I don't understand is if these things are essential for life, then why are they owned by private entrepreneurs? We used to have a situation, if you recall, um, we used to have a position, position in the UK where those essentials of life 
were publicly owned. Quite rightly, they were publicly owned. And they were publicly owned and publicly paid for. We have to remember that the um, development of free and um, very, very healthy water, electricity and all the pylons and all the connections, gas and the extraction of gas, um, telecommunications. You know, you think, who, who paid for the lane of all the original telecommunications lines? Who paid for the uh, buses and the trains and the, and the networks? The public paid for it. The public paid for it through public taxation. Um, and that is the way it should be. Socialism, to me, has to be defined uh, in a number of ways in terms of values, but in terms of economics, it's where the essentials of life are not owned by private entrepreneurs. They're owned by us collectively, the public. And they're run not for private profit. They're run for public service. They're run for the greater good of everyone, not for the enrichment of a tiny few at the top of society. I remember there's a good wee definition of what I'm trying to say um, was a sketch that the wonderful Rory Bremner did a number of years ago, um, the um, Bremner Bird and Fortune series where they had uh, a sketch where it was in the middle of the uh, late 80s uh, under Thatcher and she'd sold off the gas, she'd sold off the electricity, she'd sold off the telecommunications, she'd sold off the train, she she was wanting to sell off uh, the, the um, post office, she never got round to that. Um, she was selling everything off and uh, the way they obviously marketed it was, was brilliant. Um, you may be too young to remember the adverts, um, but there was this advert Tell Sid, um, marvellous advert, because it was dead memorable, the fact I can still remember it shows you how good it was. And this was Tell Sid, and it was about buying shares in the gas industry. They were going to privatise gas. Tell Sid that you can buy shares. So it was sort of to alert people to become shareholders. And uh, Rory did this sketch where two guys are sitting in the pub, two friends, and one of, his, one of the friends is very glum, very sad. And his pal says, what mess up with you? He says, oh, he says, I'm really sad. My car got stolen the other night. Yeah. And he said, oh, that's bad. He says, that's oh, worse than that. He says, the guy who stole it chapped my door this morning and he's offered to sell it back to me. And his pal says, but that's theft. And he says, no, 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 that's privatisation. <laughs> okay. and, and, and in that one wee sketch, it sums up the lunacy of what these people got away with. We owned British Gas. Yeah. We owned the electricity, the telecommunications. And these people come along and they use their control of the billionaire-owned media to try and make you think you're getting something that you didn't already have. Buy shares in something that you yeah. already own. It was complete and utter theft. Um, a it, fantastic, it's a fantastic analogy, that sketch. It was a great sketch. It was a great sketch. Well, it was great for me anyway. It stuck in my mind all those, those years. And I do think it sums up why we have to have a political programme that says, first and foremost, before we do anything else, if we're really going to improve the standard of life for ordinary families, we need to try and generate more national wealth. National wealth. How do you generate national wealth? Not just via taxation, that's important, but also via your control of the essentials of life. So that instead of us having billionaires who are owning the gas and electricity. I mean, it doesn't take much to become a billionaire when you own the gas and electricity. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not as if you have to be a really, really cute entrepreneur to convince people to buy gas off you. Yeah. you know, we all need it. We yeah. all use it. Uh, so let's get it back into the, the, the public 
um, corporation so that it's all part of the public wealth national wealth um, for me going back to your original question where, where the socialism originate what's it about we need to have it in a situation where economically we say the big things in life the big things that matter are publicly owned I would go further we need nationally owned bank uh, we need insurance to be public instead of private because insurance companies are there to rip people off left, right and centre. We, we need, in my opinion, uh, a resource uh, that's close to my heart here in Scotland, particularly as a uh, support independence, uh, would be the oil uh, reserves. Now, I don't want us to have the next generation of fossil fuel uh, extraction as the way of, of underpinning our economy because it's a damaging um, development. However, the oil that does exist and, and will be extracted should be extracted and put into the pockets of the national exchequer, the national purse, not the private billionaires in Texas who currently own most of the, the oil that's extracted in Scotland. So although you hear this phrase all the time, it's Scotland's oil, I'm sorry, literally, it's no... Uh, it actually is owned by the, the Texacos uh, of the world and the BPs who tend to be American-owned via shareholding. So one of the things we have to do if we want to have a proper independent Scotland um, that can survive and can prosper is we need to look at the national uh, resources, the oil, the gas, the electricity, the land, the banks, and we need to say they should be in the public wealth, they should be part of the public structure um, and they should be run and organised on the basis of helping everybody, not just helping a wee few at the top. Um, so there's, there's. I know it's a longer answer than no, than, no, than, than uh, would have been preferred, but no, no, the, the point all. is that um, socialism for me starts with that. Then you develop your value system because from that, from the idea of people not profit to, to, to try and bring it, reduce it to slogans. People not profit, what does, what does that actually mean? It means that people are more important than private profit. It means that when there are individuals in society whose level of income is so far below those at the top of society that it is a gulf of Mount Everest proportions, then your society is unfair. You should always measure your society and your society's success by the lowest, not by the top. Uh, and on that basis, it's, it really irks me that we keep hearing uh, how healthy the economy is based on the Financial Times Index. You know, as, as, if, as if those that are major shareholders are an indication of how healthy your economy is. Yeah, who, who was it that said actually regarding that? Was it, was it Mandela that spoke of you measure a society and how good a society is by regards to the prisons? Mandela, is that, is that Mandela? Mandela and Martin Luther King Martin Luther used to King. also say that. Mandela's most famous um, quote in terms of what I'm saying here um, is Mandela famously said, poverty is not natural, it's man-made and it can be unmade. And that, to me, I love that because you will get those in society who philosophically fill the universities and the academic world who say, oh, look, 
things have always been like this. You, you just need to accept it. I mean, it, it's a replacement for the old religious domination where uh, in, in the days of theocracy across the world um, where people were told to just accept the way things are because you'll get your reward in heaven afterwards. Um, now more and more people don't accept that. But what you've got is the academia of the world who's saying, yeah, but listen, that's just the way things are. Uh, individual human nature is naturally greedy uh, we're naturally competitive we're, we're naturally want to, to accumulate as much po- as possible and I, I keep saying to myself well see if that, oh, that's natural uh, going to explain charity to me going to explain human solidarity uh, going to explain how it is that people help neighbours across the road or check on neighbours if, if they've not seen them for a couple of days because all of that is human nature and to me, that's the real human nature that we have to develop and bring out. Um, the human nature, which is promoted by big business, um, is false, in my opinion, uh, because it's, it tries to preach the philosophy that the only way to develop in life is to step on somebody. Um, and that's wrong, in my opinion. The, um, your socialist values and socialist ideals, going back a bit, I've asked my two previous guests, Dougie and Johnny, before, uh, before you, um, you know, just to go back a bit, you went to school, Pollock, you went to school in Pollock? That's right, I, I was, uh, I moved to Pollock when I was two years of age, so I was born in Govan, um, I'm two older sisters, so I was the, I was the baby of the family, uh, my mum worked in pubs, um, and had a cleaning job as well, my dad worked in the Rolls Royce factory in Hullington, um, so we moved to Pollock in 1966, um, so most of my life, certainly my childhood, was in Pollock and Lintenhall Road. And I attended St Monica's uh, Primary School and then Lourdes Secondary School. And I had a party in here last night and I had a few of my friends um, who I'd went to nursery with, and went to primary with, went to secondary with, were here last night, uh, at least four, um, and we were all just talking about our memories of our childhood and how positive they were because... We had we had good men memories, we had pleasant memories. Now the point is we look back now and realise that we were all quite poor. <laughs> but yeah. but we were all in the same boat, so you didn't really notice yeah. any of these things. I mean, the fact that our moms and dads couldn't afford the real kickers that were out when we were growing up and everybody wanted a pair of kickers uh, and, and, and the real straight leg uh, cords and, and that's the, a pair of shoes I've now heard kickers in a while that's yeah. goodness well there you go uh, I'm I'm 55 now so uh, when, I, when I was uh, like 13, 14 um, you were moaning the face after your mom to get you a pair of kickers but inevitably you got the co-op alternative yeah. which was a pair of boots that, that were a wee bit chunky and, and had a, a passing resemblance to kickers but they certainly didn't have the kickers sign yeah. on them you know? yeah. but you just, that, such was life we were all the, we were all the same um, we all wanted to go on school trips and some of us just couldn't date because uh, moms didn't have enough money and dads didn't have enough money but the point is our memories were about playing football in the street, um, chasing the lassies, and um, trying to grow up quicker than 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 you really should be. Um, and they were all very very good. Um, so, a was, low, it tough, was it tough? Glasgow around them would have been. Listen, uh, there's no part of Glasgow that doesn't have a tough area. You know, every I mean, Pollock has got a reputation for gangs and violence and, and undoubtedly there, there was some f- regular fights and there was 
you know, threats and all the rest of it. But you know, you grow up in an environment, you learn to cope. You know, you 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 learn um, the warning signs. Um, it also helps if you develop your football skills because then uh, you become one of the good guys because you can play f- football and you've got an advantage. Uh, uh, you you try. I, I'm very acutely aware now. I speak to my own daughter who's fourteen. Um, that anybody of her age who is a bit of an outsider who's a bit of a loner I keep saying to her look you know try and be friendly and try and help because it's not always easy to fit in um, and, and those who don't fit in kind of problems there's, there's no doubt about that and the schools nowadays definitely have to work hard to make sure that nobody's been left behind and nobody's been bullied and um, it can, can be difficult because there's, there's not always obvious signs but, but, but sometimes there are um, so from my point of view, my mum at this time, um, she was a very clever woman, but she, she didn't have academic qualifications. She left school at 15 um, and worked in pubs most of her life, a couple of factory jobs, the rope factory doing in, in Govan. Um, but in the course of working in the pubs, she joined the trade union, Transport and General Workers Union. And in those days, that was unheard of. The nobody was in unions and pubs. It was, it was a very, very temporary workforce and a very exploited workforce. And my mum started to try and organise the bar staff. Um, so, can you just could you just give the kids or give those listening again a fundamental definition of a trade union and a fla- Well, maybe maybe then later on a flavour of how the trade unions changed over the years, which might come in with the with Thatcher. Well, the. A trade union is uh, an organisation that exists to try and bring those who work in uh, a workplace together uh, in a united club, like um, whether it be a table tennis club at school or a um, football club. um, uh, You come together and you organise and you try in a trade union to promote the best interests of all of you who are working in the same place. You recognise that the people you're working for don't always, it's not 100%, but often those you're working for don't always have your best interests at heart because all they want you to do is work as hard as possible for them to make as much money as possible and therefore your working conditions aren't always their biggest concern. Trade unions try and get employers to understand that the conditions of the workforce are important. So if you're a young person and you're getting your first job, I was all, I would always advise you, join a trade union. Because then if you've got a problem at your work, you're not going to see the employer who's usually very powerful, usually very wealthy, you're not going to see that employer as an individual who's got no wealth and very little power, you're going to see that employer as a member of a big club because you're all in the one trade union and therefore you're speaking not for yourself, you're speaking on behalf of hundreds, maybe thousands of people, depending on how big the workplace is. So when my mother tried to get the bar staff to join the unions, at first it was difficult because a lot of the staff who were poorly paid um, could could hardly afford to pay their union dues. But more importantly, we're saying, why? What's in it for us? Why should we join a trade union? So my mother explained that they were fighting for things like overtime payments because often in the pub trade in those days uh, the closing time was only when the pub closed 
it wasn't when the staff finished. We had to do all the clearing up and, and putting the glasses away and sweeping the floors. And they never got paid for that part of the work, uh, even though um, they were still working. So, um, and they also, one of the other big bugbears was because uh, it was a predominantly female uh, workforce, um, they were often working late at night and having to spend their own money to get taxis home, which again, ended their wages. So my mum fought for overtime payments, she fought for uh, transport costs, um, she fought for uh, greater holidays and recognition of shift, uh, different shift allowances. And lo and behold, more and more people, this is during the 1970s, were joining the trade union. Uh, however, the big breweries at the time, who were the employers who owned the pubs, they refused to recognise the trade unions, so they wouldn't negotiate with them. So they, although the trade unions were saying, right, we want to negotiate a higher wage rate and we want to negotiate um, taxi uh, taxis home for the staff, we want to negotiate overtime payments. Tenants Caledonian, which was the biggest um, uh, brewer at the time, said, no, well, we, we're not negotiating with you. And uh, things went reached an impasse. They were having lots of arguments and uh, eventually the um, members of the union agreed that they were going to go out and strike to force Tenant Caledonian to recognise them, that they, that they should negotiate with their union. And um, my mum was one of the leaders of, of that strike in Glasgow um, and they were laughed at because um, the Tenant Caledonian were saying, oh, look, you've not got a snowball's chance in hell uh, if 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 you go and try and picket a pub, which the, the, the term picket means that when you're on strike, you go to the workplace and you stand outside the workplace and you appeal for people not to go into the workplace because you're on strike and you want them in solidarity with you not to go into that workplace. That's that's called a picket line. Um, and the, the brewers used to say to my mum, Ach, look, you're, you're unhiding to nothing because if you close one pub, people will just go to another pub. There's loads of pubs. You, you, there's no way you could pick all the pubs. And, of course, they were absolutely right because there was no way they could pick it hundreds and hundreds of pubs all over Glasgow, uh, let alone Scotland. However, what they didn't take into account was that my mum and the other leaders of the union didn't pick at the pubs. They picketed the brewers. So they went and appealed to the lorry drivers and said, please don't deliver the uh, beer to these pubs because we're in strike. And they went to the the breweries' uh, factories and uh, in those days the lorry drivers were all unionised. They, they were all in the TGW, Transport and General Workers Union, as it was known then. It's now called Unite uh, over after years and years of evolving. Um, and within two days... Tenant Caledonians decided that they were going to negotiate. So it was a great victory. Um, and that whole story, because I used to always ask, you know, Mum, where are you going? Why are you out all the time? You know, why are you going to all these meetings? My mum says to me, uh, when I was a wee boy, I used to always tell her I was going to buy her a taxi when I grew up because she was always <laughs> yeah. waiting in a taxi to go to meetings. Uh, I said, I'm going to buy you a taxi. Um, and I also apparently said, I don't like the unions. Um, because they're taking my mum away. Um, so that was a big lesson for me, Tony, and it set me up about the whole idea of 
people joining together, people fighting things, people having a wee bit of collective strength. Um, my mum, her values very much were passed on to me and my two um, so it was, your, it was your mother that it was your mother because that, that's what I was going to ask you. I was going to be the next question around who introduced you to these ideas of so your socialist values. Then, but any was there any teachers at school at this point, or not even necessarily in the context of socialism, but just any memorable teachers as well. Well, before before I, I address that, I do want to say something about my dad because yeah. um, th- th- there is a, an interesting um, concept here which I think is important to emphasise. My mum was. Therefore, into politics in a big P, um, capital P politics. Um, she began to get involved with the Labour Party in those days. Um, I joined the Labour Party because of my mum at the age of 16. Um, and she was very influential in my political life. However, and speaking up for my dad, I have to um, emphasise that he was also involved in politics but of a small P character. Yeah. Because my dad ran the local football team. My dad used to take me to see Celtic uh, as a kid from age of six, seven, eight, nine. I, I saw seven in a row, I saw eight in a row. Uh, we used to go in the local supporters bus, my dad and my uncle, his brother. Um, and I used to love it. It was fantastic. Um, you know, I had the pleasure of seeing the Jimmy Johnson, Bobby Lennox, Kenny Dalglish, George Conley, you know, Billy... Uh, McNeil, uh, you know the, the the people who are football legends and people who are legends of Celtic. I had the pleasure of seeing them in the flesh, um, and as a, as a kid, uh, and I grew up with that. However, by the time I reached about ten, uh, I was playing football across the road in Pollock, and uh, one of the neighbours, guy Mister Little, his name was, uh, one up. I stayed in two six five Lintel Road. He stayed in two six three, and uh, he saw me playing football and he said. <clears throat> you're quite handy you should come down and get trial for Paul United Boys Club <coughs> and at the time I wasn't playing wasn't with any organised boys club but my dad was very keen for me to do that went down played well got a game and lo and behold um, was playing for Paul United at the age of 10 and then Mr Little said to my dad listen we're really struggling for people to help is there any way you know, you, you could help out. And I thought it was an incredible sacrifice from my dad's point of view because he loved the football. But we eventually gave up going to the football. Yep. And he became the manager of our team. Um, and then he, he convinced his brother, my uncle, to be the assistant manager. Yep. So from the age of under 10s to under 18s, my dad and my uncle ran Paul United Boys Club. And Paul United Boys Club... In those days, in the not in the part of North Port that I lived in, was an institution that we. It wasn't just a, a boys' club on a Saturday. We had training two nights a week, but we also had week weekend discos on a Friday night, um, which got us all off the streets. It, it gave us something to do. You know, that the club was something that we all evolved in, and we met boys from different parts of Park. So it broke down all the gang distinctions. You know, in our days. You, where I came from was the known as the crew, and uh, but where we, we trained was known as the cross, and then there was the Bundy, and and then there was the young pen for penalty. It was loads of gangs, but people came together at the football club, and it was all broke down, and there was no fighting, and and we all grew up together. Um, so it was a massive, massive institution, and that club um, developed teams from under ten, right up to under eighteen. So you've got about. 
12, 13 teams, man, it's a lot of yep. kids that are involved. Um, my dad then ended up becoming the president of the club and all that, and because he was well liked with, with, with all the other uh, mums and, and dads that, that ran the, the club. So the, the reason I emphasise that is because it is important that people understand politics isn't just about what you see in Parliament and uh, being a member of a political party or whatever. Politics is also about the community. Yeah, the community is probably the most important part about politics, because see if you don't have people, um, who are working hard to bring the community together, you don't have a community. Yeah, and and people like my dad and my uncle and hundreds of thousands of ordinary parents up and down uh, Scotland, they all deserve recognition for the work they put in, uh, voluntary. And this, this is the point that it needs to be emphasised. This is all voluntary. They they don't get a penny for this. Um, people, my all my mates used to say. Uh, the only reason I got a game was because my dad was taking the team but uh, what they didn't know was the, the deal I had with my dad was that he would only pick me if I helped him do the strips on a Friday night yeah. uh, we used to, I used to meet him for his work uh, Rolls Royce and funny enough I stay in Paisley Road West now and the laundrette was doing at Paisley Road West near to the Argosy pub uh, and that's where after his work he would go to the laundrette with the strips and I would meet him over there and we would do the strips and fold the strips bring them back uh, and and then I used to get a wee look at his book on a Friday night because he would always pick a team on yeah. Friday night. I'd try and make sure I was in the team. Uh, all of that is important to Tony in terms of what makes you a person. Yeah. Because that's where you get your values, that's where you get your compassion and your care, um, your teamwork. Um, you develop the understanding that although we're all individuals, we're really nothing through each other yeah. and that's what society's about speaking of your dad just off air uh, you must well I was speaking to my dad actually off air um, and he was yeah he wanted, he wanted me to say to you today obviously he was like because when I was preparing for the interview and I was asking different people about you know what to ask or what to mention my dad I said to you off air my dad said he'd been a member of the Paisley and District Communist Communist Party so he was very far left Um. And he'd said, and it was just what you mentioning now, but your dad working for Rolls Royce. My dad had worked for Rolls Royce as well, and he he was saying he'd been in the front page of the Daily Mail, um, because they'd basically get sacked and or, or there was a dispute, um, and then the way that Rolls Royce managed to to beat the worker as such was by you know they said they were in the pub, um, and my dad was like, we weren't. No, I'll be honest, I know my dad. So, <laughs> mm. so the jury's it, but uh, no. But no, he was he was adamant. All joking aside, adamant that he wasn't, and that that was an injustice. As your political career begins to develop, what injustices is there? Anything that sticks out as an attack on society? What injustice sticks out that really, really um, encouraged you to get right involved in politics? Before I address that specific question, Tony, let let me use what you've said to try and illustrate what you would call the hegemony of power um, because we have to understand that society is very, very well organised on behalf of the rich and for the rich. You think of the media, you think of the education, you think of all of the institutions, the courts, the police. They are all very much part of the establishment. So that, for instance, when you say about your dad that he was a member of the Paisley District Communist Party, so he was very far left. Yep. <laughs> you get the situation where 
you are part of that hegemony and maintaining that hegemony because what those in power want you to believe is that if you're a socialist, you're far left. Okay. Right? And what does that mean? Because what you don't want to do is take on the message. What you want to do is you want to do in the messenger. And therefore, if you're a socialist, oh, you're an extremist. Yeah. Because far left and extremist are synonymous. That's that's the way the media pr- promotes it. Um, and it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, practice because I remember reading John Pillager and I really encourage particularly your young listeners, but those not so young as well, uh, if you really, really want to unlock society, read some of John Pillager, uh, who's a, the leading investigative journalist in the world. Um, Hidden Agendas is, is, is one of his beautiful books. Uh, Tell, uh, Tell More Lies is another, which you should um, get into. Um, Freedom Next Time. Lots of really good books. But Pilger makes the point that in the Soviet Union, um, maintaining hegemony is much more straightforward because they used to have gulags. Yep. And if you were a dissident, you were put in a gulag. Yep. He, he says that he once had a group of Russians visit the UK and spend time in the UK, and they, they were making the point that how wonderful it was here because they didn't need gulags. All they had to do was brand people. So that um, Arthur Scargo's an extremist, so he's a really, he's a baddie. Tony Benn's an extremist, he's, he's a baddie. So you get... Kind of with Corbyn now as well? Corbyn is the probably the prime example, modern day. Uh, I'm going to divert for yep, two seconds, it. but it's important to divert. Because here's a man whom I met probably 30 years ago uh, during the anti-poll tax campaign. Um, here's a man who spent his life fighting racism, inequality, um, fighting against discrimination in all its ugly forms. And according to the mainstream media, he's an anti-Semite. Yes. It, 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 it is so damned ridiculous. But these people get away with it. And they, they repeat it often and often and often. And it's like the Joseph Goebbels school of lies, the, yeah. the old fascist... Uh, Joseph Goebbels used to him and Hitler used to make the point if you're going to tell lies make sure you repeat them often enough and then people will accept them and that's what they do with Corbyn anti-Semite uh, unpatriotic un, uh, uh, they throw things at them and they repeat them friends of terrorists all of the things which you examine and you think it's just garbage but it's because they're scared of them they're absolutely petrified that Corbyn would ever get into power yeah. because he's the real deal. He's, he's, he's not somebody, he's not a Blairite who's is only going to change the the, 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 the jerseys um, from the, the red jersey to the blue jersey and the blue jersey back to the red jersey and there's no change fundamentally. Corbyn actually wants to change society. He, want, he wants to change the whole game um, and from, from that point of view he will be lambasted. But the point that I'm picking up on is even, I'm not meaning to be, Pernickety with you in any way, shape, or form, but in terms of the language that we all use and the language that becomes acceptable, yep. far left, extremist, um, communist is synonymous with all those things. Socialist, oh, oh, he's a socialist, as if it's a term of abuse yeah. <laughs> instead of being something wonderful and, well, and caring, which it should be. Yeah, uh, but I, that's I just I just wanted to bring no, that. No, of course, because I think I think it's you know because I was watching Corbyn the other day. And, 
you know, Corbyn makes the point about, I think a lot of people are afraid that under a socialist, you know, government or under socialism that in some way you can't be wealthy. And Corbyn's point is, I've not got a problem with people being wealthy, it's just as you touched on at the beginning of the, the podcast, just a wee bit of a fairer share. Absolutely. Um, if, you, if you're going to be wealthy, um, that's great. But pay your taxes and pay your workers a decent wage and, and make sure that their working conditions uh, are the most modern and, and, and the most humane. Uh, now, if you can do all of that and make yourself money, and it, lots of people do, not, not every employer is a bastard, some of them are actually decent employers, but those that are the worst employers tend to be the ones that make the biggest amount of money. Your Amazon is a great example we all use Amazon, but you know it's the, they've got a cartel as far as delivery of of uh, online goods are concerned. But go and examine the fact that they make billions, billions of profit every year, but pay only a tiny yeah. percentage in tax. And then the way they treat their workers, they try and get them to be on zero hour contracts, so there's no employment protection. Their wage levels are atrocious. The wonderful wee example. Uh, recently, I was doing some research for a, an article because I, I write for a living just now and I was doing some research for an article about Bernie Sanders and his, his attempt to become the Democratic nominee for President of America in the 2020 elections. And he's going doing fantastic, although he's, you wouldn't think it, you know, there's some of the coverage he gets. But, um, so, so, similar with the Corbyn exactly, thing here. Exactly. So Bernie Sanders um, has been involved in politics for the 70s. He was elected as a, a mayor way back in those, the 70s and people hold it against him that he's 78 years of age he's too old uh, and he had a heart attack uh, recently as well and oh well he, he's no fit for the job and all the rest of it he recovered from his heart attack within two weeks and while he was on his sick bed he used the incident of the heart attack to underline one of the main policies he's fighting on which is a universal health healthcare system yep. in America people maybe don't understand because they take our healthcare system for granted but in America the single biggest cause of A death and B bankruptcy is the lack of a healthcare system because millions upon millions in the richest country on the planet can't afford to get healthcare can't afford to get hospital care can't afford a doctor um, and those who do try and pay for it millions of them end up bankrupt um, so Bernie Sanders' position is that he wants a single payment health system similar to Britain's where you pay national insurance and you get healthcare instead of the private <coughs> insurance Americans companies and drugs ter- companies. Terif- Americans, again, are terrified of that. Well, here, here, here's the point I'm going to come to. So Bernie has been raising finance to run his campaign. And yep. Obviously, America is about publicity is about buying ads it's, if you can't buy ads and if you, you can't buy TV time you're not going to compete in the election because nobody's going to get your message and um, Bernie refuses to take corporate donations most of the other candidates in the Democratic Party as well as the Republicans they gladly take corporate donations because the corporate corporations give money to both Republicans and to the Democrats because they know once they get into power They'll do their bidding for them. So the big drugs companies, insurance companies, auto companies, the fossil fuel companies, they, they always fund the who they think is going to be front runners because yep. on the basis of hedging their bets. Sanders refuses to take corporate donations. 
and in the third quarter of the fundraising campaign, he outraised all of the other Democratic candidates, including Joe Biden, who's the establishment front runner. Yeah. He's the one that they're promoting big time, and another woman called Elizabeth uh, Warren. Uh, Bernie raised twenty five point three million dollars from individual small donations. Mm-hmm. And here's the rub. The single biggest, because all of these donations have to be recorded because of uh, law. Um, so the, the single uh, biggest uh, employee that uh, was recorded was teachers. So most of the people who gave money to Bernie Sanders are teachers. So that's their yeah. occupation. The three biggest employers, the largest employers of the donors was Starbucks, um, Walmart, yeah. and Amazon. It's the three biggest. So all of that money raised, he's getting his money from people who work for Starbucks, work for yeah. Walmart, work uh, for, for Amazon. And he, it's primarily because Bernie has targeted those three as three of the biggest corporations in America who pay their workers terrible wages, give them terrible conditions, but they also pay very little in tax on the profits that they make. And there's the quid pro quo. He's targeted them, he's highlighted them, and what have the workers done? They've responded by saying, I'm supporting your campaign. Yeah. I'm, I'm badly paid, but I'm going to give you money. Now that, to me, is the type of campaign that you want, and it's also the type of person, my, the, the title of my article that I wrote was, uh, not just America, but the world needs Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Because the point is, if you've got somebody like him, in the Oval Office uh, and in charge of the most powerful nation in the world, then maybe peace will be given a better chance, you know? It's not just as you're talking, it's almost identical, the, the you know, America and Britain, Corbyn and Sanders, you know, the, the, the issues are faced. And then it's, I don't know if I'm a mile out here, I really don't know if I'm a mile out, but as you were talking, I was thinking the Karl Marx quote about the, the I, I think it's a bit about the class struggle, about the history of being a class struggle. To, to what extent is it a class struggle? Well, to me, it's the whole of society. What, what, what Marx tried to do was analyse society. I mean, Marx was a philosopher, he was a sociologist, he was an economist, he was a politician, he was all those things. Um, his, his, his greatest quote, which is inscribed on his gravestone um, in, in, in London, um, is the philosophers have interpreted the world. The point, however, is to change it. Yeah. Um, and, and from the point of view of what Marx did was he tried to analyse the laws of historical development. And what he said was, history is determined by class yep. struggle. Yep. Um, now, bear in mind, the class struggle element of it only comes in after the Industrial Revolution mm-hmm. because before then it was an agrarian-based society, so it was, the, it, was the struggle, it was the struggle of the peasants rather yeah. than the classes. Uh, and before that, it was the struggle of the slaves. You know, it's, it's, the point he always makes is um, that struggle is the, the midwife of progress. Yeah. Um, struggle's always brought you a better life. Right, okay. um, and uh, although when you're in the midst of struggle, it might be very, very difficult and very dark, there's always a light at the end of that uh, tunnel because progress is there. Um, so from the point of view of, of me and, and um, looking at politics at large and the whole situation, 
today, I'm while you're angry at the fact that somebody like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson are in charge of America and the UK and you think, you know, five, six, seven years ago, if somebody had offered you a double bet on that, <coughs> it'd probably give you odds of about a thousand, a million to one, because you would have been like, ah, no chance. And yet it's happened. Yep. And that's dark. For me, that's dark, because these individuals, they are selfish, they're greedy, uh, they govern for the millionaires, they, they look after the establishment and the wealthy, they don't care about ordinary working class people, in my opinion, and all of their policies prove that. However, just as that's dark, then there's the bit of light, and that's a, there's the bit of the development of society, because out of that darkness, you've got Sanders competing in America, you've got Corbyn competing in, in England and Wales, as I said earlier, um, I think the beauty of Scotland and Scotland's divergence from what's been happening um, is that Scotland has, well, much of, of England has been moving politically to the right. I would say that Scotland has moved much uh, to the left. And I think that the values of Scotland, the communitarian values, the civic values, the idea of a publicly owned health service, the idea of publicly owned uh, education, the idea that um, transport should be run in the public, the idea that a national bank should be developed, the idea that a publicly owned energy company should be developed, these are all now getting done. These, these are things which years ago when I was uh, bumping my gums about them, people used to say, oh, he's an extremist and he's half his head and blah, blah, blah. Funny enough, they're now mainstream ideas, yep. uh, the, the, these things. Uh, I, was, I was laughing, one of my, my next articles that I'm going to write soon, um, is in relation to a demand which uh, I've made for many a long year uh, and it's the idea of a publicly owned pharmaceutical company uh, because I could never understand the incongruence between a publicly owned health service and a privately owned drugs industry because the health service can't survive without the supply of drugs but because the drugs are in the private hands it means they exploit us yeah, and that's, that's almost logical that they're good. You, you always hear stories of the NHS getting absolutely milked and ripped off by private it, companies. It, you're absolutely right, but before the health service, public owned health service since 1948. Yep. But drugs companies have stayed private ever since. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and recently, there's the, the a recent example um, a company called Aspen, um, who has been found out by the Competitions and Market Authority, CMA. Um, and what they were doing was they were illegally paying two other drugs companies to steer out the market of a, a particular drug so that they had the monopoly on it. And then they were increasing the cost of that drug from cost price. They put an 1,800% markup. 1,800% markup. That's theft, in my opinion. That, that's absolutely criminal. Um, if you were to think of the amount of drugs, cystic fibrosis, cancer, Alzheimer's, things which we really should be having research into and developing way be, be before now. All of the talk is that they've got lots of drugs available for these things, but it's not profitable. Why Why would you cure cystic fibrosis? Why would you have cures for cancer? Why yeah. would you have cures for... Because if you have cures, <laughs> the drugs industry goes in. <laughs> so from my point of view, what I want is I want a publicly owned pharmaceutical industry that develops drugs not for profit, but for health, 
um, so that we supply our health service. And if you go to a college course in the next few weeks, a small business course, and say, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to open a small business, the advice you would get is, well, first of all, you need to identify your market. Have you got a market for the good? <laughs> yeah. Well, here you go. We've got a market. We've got a public health service. We, we currently spend in, in Scotland. That's one buyer, just one purchaser, and that's, that's we what they need. We spend in Scotland £1.4 billion pounds a year in drugs. £1,400 million pounds a year in drugs. That's a market. Yeah. Why don't we have that market in the public um, national wealth? Uh, and then, okay, we look after our own health service, but we then say to the rest of the world, poor countries in the world that are getting ripped off as well by these companies. We say, by the way, cost price, we're going to supply you these life-enhancing, these life-improving drugs because we're going to make a, a basis of improving humanity, you know. So the, the, the reason I make that point is for years and years I've been arguing for it and lo and behold, a couple of weeks ago, Labour Party Conference has now voted to put it in their manifesto. Yeah. So I'm over the moon that these policies have begin, begin to become um, uh, important Mainstream. mainstream policies. Can know? I just ask on that, just just very briefly on that? Just so, do you think, in a word actually, are these companies, are these, there's a conspiracy doing the rounds, um, which are these companies cynical enough and greedy enough, the pharmaceutical companies, to have a cure for something like cancer and not share it with the world? I wouldn't be surprised, Tony. I can't, I mean, I, I don't like saying anything definitive if I can't back it up, but I also uh, am long enough in the tooth to know that if that was to be uncovered in the next few years, not to be surprised about okay. it. Um, because there, are, there is evidence um, of um, companies deliberately uh, disinvesting in particular research and not supporting particular developments because it's more lucrative for them to continue um, drugs for epilepsy, um, drugs in relation to asthma, a lot of these things, I've had them for years, decades. People tell me that they've got drugs that can cure these things. Yeah. But if they produce the drug that cures them, then you don't Make sell money. You don't sell the other drugs. So I, I, at the end of the day, what's important is that we have a health service that is about health, not about profit. Yeah. Dude, you you touched on something earlier on. Um, for the listeners out there, can you tell us speaking of injustice, um, the poll tax? What was it, and why did people get so mental about it? Why well, did they go so crazy about Thatcher's poll tax? I think the background to that's probably important because <clears throat> Mrs. Thatcher was elected in nineteen seventy nine, <clears throat> um, but not in Scotland. In Scotland voted Labour but we ended up with Mrs Thatcher becoming the Prime Minister because England voted for her and uh, sadly out of the last 73 years I think it is um, Scotland's voted a different way from England and ended up with um, governments of a, of a different ilk so um, <clears throat> we very since 1955 Scotland's never voted Tory but we've had over 70 years of Tories, yeah. which is sad. But anyway, the point is, Thatcher was unpopular. She got elected in 79 and she came in and she didn't like the fact that Scotland didn't vote for her. And she obviously took the hump with us 
because she victimised Scotland in terms of funding um, and if you look at what happened to Ravenscraig and her steel industry, if you look at the shipyards and shipbuilding industry, it's quite clear that such couldn't give a damn. Um, Just Scotland or Scotland in the north of England? Well, it was, it was a bit of both, but Scotland in particular, and the reason I back that up is she de-industrialised the whole of the UK. Scotland happened to have a concentration of industry, so we were bound to feel the effects of that deindustrialisation more than any other part of the UK. But obviously, um, the north of, of the UK, in terms of, of Newcastle, Tyneside, um, other areas that had large manufacturing concerns, they also felt the effects of Thatcher in those first few years. Uh, by 1982, Thatcher was the most unpopular Prime Minister in history. She was heading for massive, I mean, she was heading for decimation. Um, there had been something in the order of about a million jobs lost. I mean, uh, mass unemployment, the likes of which had never been seen since the 30s. Um, and then, of course, Galtieri invaded a wee island uh, off Argentina called the Malvinas. Um, and Thatcher was able to use a war because war's good to get re-elected. To, to get re-elected. She, she was able to unleash a frenzy of patriotism, the waving of the uh, Union Jack um, in favour of reconquering this wee island that we should never have any control <laughs> of. It's thousands of miles away, for God's sake. <laughs> um, but with uh, the use of the British press, particularly the Murdoch own son, then they were able to fight a popular war. And if you look at the cephology, which is the study of, of opinion, you will see that Thatcher went from being the most single, most unpopular Prime Minister in living history uh, to becoming one of the most popular. And she won the 1983 election on the back of that. So from 1982, she was dead. But by 83, because of the Falklands War, she was able to win the 83 election. Um, and then... She set about um, decimating the industries. The privatisation programme that I talked about uh, was introduced and she then decided that she had to take on the trade unions. We spent a bit of time earlier talking about trade unions and Thatcher hated the trade unions because she hated the idea of working people having any power getting together collective bargaining. She hated that and she recognised that the most powerful union in Britain at the time was the National Union of Mine Workers. So she targeted the National Union of Mine Workers. She decided she was going to break them um, because she knew that if she broke them, then everybody else would be frightened because they were the most powerful and the most well organised. And she manufactured a strike in the, the pits starting in March of 1984. <coughs> what a lot of people don't uh, actually recall is People think that the, the strike started in Yorkshire, it actually started in Scotland. First, the first pit to go on strike was Fulin, um, in central Scotland. Um, but Thatcher decided that she was going to close down the pits and import coal because she thought she could do that cheaper yep. than paying workers to extract coal. Um, now, she said that the pits were uneconomic, the union would say, well, wait a wee minute, um, 
the pits are publicly owned. We need the coal to generate the electricity and to keep the lights going. Surely this is something that shouldn't be about economics, it should be about um, looking after people's concerns. Um, and she refused to accept that. She came away with a <coughs> famous quote that there's no such thing as society. Yeah. There are only a collection of individuals. Uh, in other words, um, forget looking after your brother or your sister or your ordinary neighbour. Uh, just look after yourself. It's me, myself, I. Uh, she also said, uh, one of her other famous quotes was, we should glory in inequality. Glory. So then, up until then, the political sort of a, uh, understanding was the inequality was quite bad and we should try and tackle it. Thatcher comes in and says, bugger that, let's make it even worse. Uh, so they then developed, because she was elected in 79 and Ronald Reagan was elected in 1981 in America. And it's funny how we were talking earlier about Sanders and Corbyn and um, the... Um, togetherness of the, the, those two nations um, Regan and Thatcher were the same but from the right Yeah. Um, and they developed uh, an economic theory that was based in a, <coughs> a guy called Milton Friedman which was um, called monetarism and uh, was, was christened the trickle down theory uh, and basically what it meant was make the rich as rich as possible give them as many tax breaks give them the ability to become billionaires and trillionaires and eventually some of it will trickle down to everybody else now it's now I mean it lasted for about 20 odd years every single economic analysis now has refuted it and debunked it and it's like a flat earth policy now you know but at the time people thought it was it was real and it was it was right uh, it was a pile of pish, but the, but there you go. Um, so um, she got uh, re-elected in eighty seven with less of a majority, uh, and Scotland, in fact, um, if I'm not mistaken, pretty sure they elected fifty out of seventy MPs were Labour. Um, the Tories only had I think it was about ten. In fact, I think it was ten exactly. Tories were decimated in Scotland in the 1987 election. <coughs> this is a long way round to then come to the point about the poll tax because then Thatcher decided, bugger this Scotland. Not only have they not voted for me in any of the other elections, but they've not voted for this time. I'm going to introduce a new policy and I'm going to call it a community charge and I'm going to put it in Scotland first. So the one country... Well, she's not got any popularity. Is the one country she wants to try her new policy. We we became the guinea pigs, and this new policy um, was to replace a thing called rates, and rates was a property tax. Rates was was a tax that was based on the size of your house. So if you had a big big house, <coughs> you paid more rates than somebody in a wee house, and particularly if you stayed in a tenement. I I got raised in a tenement all my life, so. We had, we, had, we had low rates because we all lived on top of each other. We were in a four-storey tenement. I was the top uh, storey. Um, so we had a small rates bill. And everybody in my scheme had a small rates bill because most of stayed in tenements. But if you go to Giffnock or you go to Bear's Den and big sprawling mansions, then they paid big rates because they were massive properties. And they, they used to vote Tory. Whereas everybody in the schemes would be voting Labour. 
uh, in those days. Um, and Thatcher thought, this isn't good. And her big supporters in places like Ayrshire and Renfrewshire, uh, the East Renfrewshire and Giffnock, they said, oh, we need to get rid of these rates. These rates are terrible. And Thatcher, they said, OK, let, let's look at this new tax that uh, has been developed by a guy called um, Ridley. Was it Ridley? <coughs> I think it was Nicholas Ridley that came up with it first. But anyway, as a matter. Policy was, instead of a property tax, let's have a head tax. Let's not, let's not tax property, let's tax individuals. So that what we'll do is everybody that's over the age of 18 in a house pays a poll tax. They called it a community charge. But it very, very quickly became known as the poll tax because it, it was everybody. Um, and lo and behold, <coughs> a property like a tenement building in Pollock where I lived, um, four adults, used to have a rates bill of maybe a couple of hundred quid a year, was now an individual poll tax of £300 a year per individual. So instead of 200 for the house, you knew 1,200. So the poll tax was a single biggest wealth transfusion from the poor to the rich that Thatcher had tried. In one fell go, it took money off the working class and gave it to the well-off. Because while the dustman in his council house was paying mayor, the duke in his castle was paying less. Because the duke who was in a massive castle that was paying thousands of pounds in rates was now only paying 300. <laughs> yep. So he was saving money, yep. but the ordinary worker was losing money. So two things. One's the unfairness of the tax, and two's the injustice that we get it first. Yep. We got it in 1989. Um, Britain wasn't the rest of Britain wasn't to get it till 1990. Um, so that's what underpinned the anger, Tony. I know it was a long answer. No, no, no. That, that's what underpinned the anger about the poll tax. We had politician after politician who analysed it. Community groups. I was involved in the Politan Employed Workers Group at the time and um, in the Tenants uh, Organisation. I was also involved in the local Labour Party. <coughs> and the, <coughs> the analysis that had been done had shown all of the things I'm talking about terms of the loss of wealth for ordinary people and the massive increase in wealth for, for those who already had loads. Um, so politicians, their favourite description was unfair, unjust, immoral. Yep. That was the three uh, adjectives that were deployed against the poll tax. We tried as best we could. As soon as we heard about it, we campaigned through the whole of 88, campaign, 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 public meetings, demonstrations, letter campaigns, petitions. Thousands upon thousands of people involved. <clears throat> and uh, Thatcher stuck her fingers up and says, don't care, he's a getting it. And by the 31st of March, 1989, that was it. The bills were sent out the 1st of April. Yeah. So, it's immoral, it's unjust and it's unfair. What I couldn't understand was why we were paying it then. Yeah, why would you pay somebody's immoral? <laughs> yeah, but you know, I get that. This is where the politicians really, really should have been taken to task for their vocabulary and their use of language, because we had um, 
Labour MPs and council leaders who were responsible for collecting this tax, who were all condemning it as immoral, unfair and unjust, but telling everybody to pay it. Yeah. <laughs> you have to keep the law. So the law was more important than something that was immoral. Um, so people like myself were involved in organising mass civil disobedience. What we said is, better to break the law than break the poor. Uh, way back in the 30s, there was a council in London called Poplar um, that was elected and refused to increase rates for people down there in the 1930s. And uh, they wouldn't set a budget because they didn't want the poor to be broken. And uh, they were taken to court and imprisoned because they broke the law, but uh, they were massively popular and it led to changes in the rate sacks and everything else. So the, the slogan from that era <clears throat> was better to break the law than break the poor. And we adopted it and we used it. And we built a absolutely massive campaign, uh, almost like a civil revolution. Um, hundreds of thousands were attending meetings, rallies, demonstrations. And within the first six, seven months of the tax, um, they estimated that half a million people had they paid. And within a year, <coughs> a million people mm -hmm. <coughs> hadn't paid. Now, the single biggest recruiting sergeant for the mass non-payment of the anti-poll tax campaign wasn't it Tommy Sheridan or anybody else. It was poverty. It was, people couldn't afford to pay. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were frightened. They were really, really frightened because they were worried that they would get sent to jail, even though you can't get sent to jail for a civil offence uh, of non-payment non a, a bill in Scotland, unlike in England. Um, the law's different. But people didn't know that. People thought you could get sent to jail. But the other thing that they were frightened of was a thing called warrant sales, which is when you can't pay a bill and uh, the person that you owe the money to gets a warrant and they send out sheriff officers to your house and they're allowed to force their way into your house, take away your furniture, sell your furniture. In the old days, they used to sell it in the street outside the house, which mm -hmm. was very embarrassing and humiliating for people. Uh, nowadays, they, they take it away an auction room and, and sell it. Uh, but either way, it's, it's an extremely uh, humiliating experience and something that people wanted to avoid. And people were worried sick that that was, was going to happen to them. And when we were having meetings in 1988, meetings in town halls, meetings in community centres, people would always make the same point to us. Tommy, how are you going to beat Mrs Thatcher? She took on the miners. She took on Galtieri. She took on the nurses. She's invincible. And in those days, she was christened the Iron Lady. Yep. Uh, across Europe, uh, they, they, they used to call her the Iron Lady. And we said, look, if you fight, you might not win. But if you don't fight, you'll definitely not <laughs> win. Um, so we've got to fight. Yep. Um, and fortunately, as I say, poverty was a big pressure. Uh, but we would like to think that the fact that we were on the streets and that we came for the schemes, uh, we would like to think that that helped people join in and and think, well, I'm going to stick with them. I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to support the mass non-payment campaign. Um, and of course, by 1990, uh, I'd been involved. I was elected this chair of the Scottish Anti-Poll Tax uh, Federation <coughs> and then I, I spent a lot of time in England and, and, and Wales travelling all over the country um, getting people prepared for 1990, March 1990 
and then the run up to the hut, I mean, there was town hall riots, there was uh, a lot more violent reactions down south than there was in Scotland, I've yeah. got to say. We never had any uh, violence as such, uh, but down south they had several incidences, uh, scores of it. But by the time we got to the 31st of March 1990, we had a big massive demonstration in Glasgow. We marched for George Square at Queen's Park. Um, well over 40,000 people marched. Fantastic event. And then I flew down to London to address Trafalgar Square, um, where there was a uh, all Britain um, demonstration. One million uh, people who hadn't paid the poll tax in Scotland. I was going down there with a message. Listen, he's only alone here. Um, we've already done it. Um, well, in excess of 100,000 people marched through London. Uh, I remember being in the plinth. <clears throat> standing with George Galloway actually um, and Tony Benn was speaking brilliant I love, I love Tony um, nah, made, he was something made, else oh, fantastic and Tony as usual made a brilliant speech and I was next um, and Tony makes a brilliant speech finishes his speech <laughs> and then the South African embassy doors opened and all hell broke loose police on riot shields oh, on really? horses uh, and then what ensued was the Trafalgar Square riot, uh, which has now became historical and, uh, and and legendary. Um the place was effectively set in light, there was fires everywhere, um hundreds of people were arrested. So I never ever go to speak. <laughs> but um that incident brought Thatcher down. Yeah. Because this was the Iron Lady who was Travelling across Europe with all this authority and all this dignity, and she was the leader of 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 Britain, and she was the leader of Europe, and she'd beat the miners, she'd beat the uh, the the Argentines. Um, she couldn't control her own city. Yeah, her own capital city was out of control, and that undermined her. That and the fact that most people realised how unfair this poll tax was yeah. by now. Um, and she was determined to push ahead with it. She, she wouldn't listen to people. Um, but that uh, event um, and the whole poll tax uh, campaign certainly was the means by which Thatcher was paralysed. Uh, I often say that um, she may have been the Iron Lady, but we melted her down and sent her off to the political knackers yard <laughs> where she belonged. So um, that's a quick potted. Yeah, of course. No, I appreciate it. Tom, we'll begin to wind it, but your biggest socialist hero of all time and why? Do you know that's a dead, dead hard one, Tony? Um, Very, very hard because there are so many. Um, The the, the man who I would encourage uh, those who are listening to to this broadcast to read about is a guy called John McLean. Um, The reason he meant so much to me was <clears throat> at school I'd never heard of him uh, I loved modern studies um, I stuck in at modern studies and, and, and it was one of those subjects at school that I excelled in because it was relevant but I never ever heard of this guy called John McLean and it was wasn't until I went to university at 17 um, still in university and I remember my mum bought me a book and it was just simply called John McLean written by his daughter uh, a woman called Nan Milton and um, I read this book and I was blown away 
because this guy was um, born in Pollockshaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was born not that far from where I grew up. Um, and he had been involved in the First World War period, organising, he was a teacher, he'd been involved in organising women workers at the local sewing factories to fight for better conditions. He'd been involved in supporting rent strikes um, against the private landlords who tried to exploit people during the First World War because there was a massive demand for properties in Glasgow because of the jobs in the armaments industry. So the private landlords decided to massively increase rents and people couldn't afford the rent, so they were evicted. So for these other people to come in, um, and local people like Mary Barber and hundreds of others, thousands of others, and governing Mary Hill organised rent strikes. And McLean was, was one of their principal supporters and spoke at other rallies. And McLean was also an educator. He used to hold open air classes in economics in Buchanan Street, Renfield Street, Glasgow Green, open air. And hundreds and thousands of people would turn up to hear about economics and hear about Marxism from this guy. Um, he was a massive anti-war campaigner. Uh, he thought the First World War was a waste of human life. Um, and it was very difficult at first, in 1914, when he said these things, because jingoism was in the air and everybody was told, oh, it's your duty. <coughs> and Maclean said, why is it your duty to go and for workers in one country to go and kill workers in another country, workers you've never met before. Why is that a duty? So he campaigned against it, and he ended up being imprisoned for, sedit- for sedition. The government introduced a, an act called the Defence of the Realm Act, the DRA, um, and they used the Defence of the Realm Act to sentence, to first of all try uh, McLean and then sentence him for sedition. He was imprisoned five times throughout his life um, for sedition. One of the times was for five years, and he only ever served a year and a half. Each of the times he was sentenced to prison, he was released because of popular pressure, because uh, he was a very popular individual in, in, in Glasgow and in the Labour and Trade Union movement. Um, Maclean, unfortunately, died very young, age 44, 1923. Um, but his teachings are still there. The Nan Milton book that I referred to, simply called John Maclean, is, is a good starting point. But for those really interested, they should read a, a book called In the Rapids of Revolution, which is a collection of John McLean's speeches uh, and pamphlets. <coughs> and it is a phenomenal education in Marxist economics and uh, socialism and human solidarity. So he he's probably my principal inspiration and somebody who um, I lay a lot of store in primarily because of his, he's from Glasgow, yeah. he's Scottish, he's Glasgow, and he stood for a Scottish Workers' Republic, which is the interesting thing at the time. <coughs> Britain was an empire, a massive empire, and uh, his argument was that Ireland should be free yeah. from British uh, occupation, and that Scotland should be free, and that Scotland should have the recognition of a, a, and the status of a nation. Uh, and his his most famous saying is "All hail the Scottish Workers' Republic." That was that was yep. McLean's slogan, um, and he was condemned by the British left for nationalism. Oh, it's no socialism. You're not you're not an internationalist because you support 
uh, an independent Scotland. And for many, many years, people like me used to accept that on the left. Oh, well, you know, you know my claim was great, but oh, that thing about the Workers' Republic and all that. And the more and more you learn and the more you understand, you think, wait, wait a minute, you're condemning him because you say he's a nationalist because he wants an independent Scotland. But you're supporting Britain. Does that not make you a nationalist? Mm-hmm, yeah. It's just you're a British nationalist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, the, the idea that you would stand in Havana, Revolution Square, and criticise the patriotism of Cubans and say, oh, you're not a nationalist because you, you support Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> the idea you would, you would go to Caracas and tell the Venezuelans that they shouldn't have called their revolution the Bolivarian Revolution because Simon Bolivar, who wanted independence for Venezuela, was a nationalist. You know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. We all relate to the world based on where we're from and it doesn't mean we're better than anybody. But our nation is where we start. Think global, act local is, yeah. is, is, is the, the motto I think we should adopt. And therefore the idea that we shouldn't have independence I think is ridiculous. I think it's a very democratic demand, but it's also a left demand. And I, I can't understand other socialists. Uh, I mentioned George earlier, George Galloway. Uh, you know, George opposes independence for Scotland, supports independence for Ireland. Cuba, for Venezuela, for Palestine, quite rightly, but not for Scotland. And I, I just kind of get to grips with that yeah. uh, contradiction. So, very, very quickly, John McLean's my single biggest um, inspiration, but you have to mention Che Guevara, you have to mention Fidel Castro, uh, you have to uh, mention Hugo Chavez, um, all of which are giants, absolute giants of the movement, either great pleasure of shaking Hugo Chavez's hand in 2003 in Caracas when I, I visited to try and interview him um, about the nature and the um, shape of the Venezuelan revolution. I never got to interview him, got to shake his hand and I got to interview his vice president, Jose Vicente Rangel, um, and it was a wonderful experience because he explained what they were trying to do in Venezuela and how they've been opposed all along the line every inch of the way by America and by imperialism. Um, but these guys, the reason these guys deserve so much credit and, and attention is they've not just talked the talk. Yep. They've walked the walk. You know, the Guevara, Castro, Chavez, um, fantastic. Um, Tony Benn, we mentioned earlier. Yep. Great. F- I had the pleasure to consider him a friend. I spent time with him in his flat, his, his flat in his house in Holland Street. Um, made me my, my lunch a couple of times um, and uh, I cherished those moments and cherished that experience I shared a lot of platforms with Tony um, during the poll tax and also anti-war activities um, in the run up to the uh, Iraq war so very much he was an inspiration Bob Crow is another guy maybe known, not quite as well known but he was the leader of the Real Workers Union the RMT uh, Cockney um, loved Bob to bits the sad thing is both Bob and Tony died within weeks of each other um, about f- see about six or seven years ago now um, big big loss to the movement two giants yeah. of the movement 
<coughs> but as I say, I'll return to John McLean uh, is probably my, my biggest inspiration. Brilliant. Uh, penultimate question. In your lifetime, will you see an independent Scotland? That's an easy one, yes. Yes? That's, that's an easy one because the psychology of the 2014 referendum showed clearly that in excess of 70% of those under the age of 30 voted for independence. That shows me it's inevitable. We we have the youth. Vladimir Lenin, leader of the Bolshevik Revolution, used to say, he who has the youth has the future. Yeah. Um, and the truth is, independence is going to harm. Um, because, A, it's normal, uh, and B, it's economically necessary for people to enhance and improve their security and standard of living. Um, so it will happen. Um, I'm now, I've been calling for it for years, certainly for the last two years, uh, but it looks like it's in rally on Saturday in Glasgow and Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister, is going to be speaking at it and it looks like she's going to name the date in next year, 2020, for the, for the NDRF2. Still not got around the question of uh, what if they don't give us a section 30 order, mind you. Yeah. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come ac- we'll get across that obstacle once we get there. Um, uh, I think there's a need for a bit more defiance um, because you can't really stick to a, a rule book that was written by the opposition for the opposition. Yeah. Um, however, yes, it's going to happen. Thank you very much. It's, right. been a, it's been a pleasure and privilege. Um, very, very grateful to you. Thank you very much. Um, Guys, I hope you've all taken something from this. I'm sure you have, especially the youngsters out there. And remember, for any tuition in any subject at school, uh, come to Educamus Tuition. Um, next month, we'll have another fantastic guest on. But again, Tommy, thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. All the best. Educamus interview aims to inspire, motivate, enlighten, and of course, educate the youth of today for the days of tomorrow.